Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with Thomas Moore. Thomas Moore is a spiritual teacher, a psychotherapist, and the author of many books, including his bestseller, Care of the Soul. During our conversation, Thomas talks about his many years as a Catholic monk, his time in academia, and his work as a therapist. He also talks about the ideas in life of Carl Jung and James Hillman, archetypes of the human psyche, and spirituality and religion in the modern world. Thomas is well known for his writings on the human soul. He discusses his appreciation for historical figures like Emily Dickinson and Henry David Thoreau and details their wisdom and insights. In an increasingly secular age, Thomas has given mystical sustenance to those seeking to better understand their own soul, its needs, and how one might live a life of spirituality and soulfulness. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Thomas Moore. Thomas Moore, I cannot tell you how much I am looking forward to this conversation. Um, I've been uh, interested in talking to you for quite some time. Welcome to the show. It's wonderful to meet you. Welcome on. Thank you very much, Dan. I'm I'm happy to be here too. Likewise. I always like to start with guests kind of at the beginning, and I did a fair amount of research about your own biography over the last week or so, and I thought it might be interesting and important to start at you know, you as a as a young man, and I know you are someone who, from reading about your life, took religion very seriously when you were really a boy and a young adult and were close to becoming an ordained priest. In as broad of a way to kind of ask this, I'm just curious if you might be able to, you know, tell that story of what you remember about a young Thomas More and what resonated with you about religion and Catholicism back then. I think it began when I <clears throat> when I was born into a, a very devout Roman Catholic family in Detroit, Michigan, and um, an Irish Catholic family. And I went to school at a Catholic school and attended a Catholic church. And I was an altar boy, was very close to the priests. And by the time I was 13, I, uh, uh, I had been... Um, drawn into that life, and many of the people, young men ahead of me, went off to a seminary to study to be a priest. And I did the same. My parents wanted me to wait a while, but I was just fired up. I just wanted to do that. So I did. And uh, the priests that I joined were uh, what's called a a religious mendicant order. It means that they were sort of half monks and half parish priests. And so as a student, since I wasn't a parish priest uh, for 13 years, I lived the life of a monk, essentially. And I loved it. I loved that life very much. Uh, I studied hard. I got a good education in the classics. It was a very liberal-minded order, emphasis on really fine learning. And uh, I, I took my many of my philosophy courses in Latin. I studied Greek for four years. So it was a very classical education. But I woke one morning when I was 26 and uh, felt that uh, whatever had inspired me to do this had left, had gone. Mm -hmm. 
And so I I left. And I I had studied music uh, as a monk, and I loved that too. So I thought I might be a musician, but that didn't quite work out. And um, I eventually got a PhD in religious studies from Syracuse University. Mm-hmm. It was a wonderful program I was in. And um, so I got a very good education there and um, thought I would be a professor for the rest of my life. But uh, I I, uh, I I was actually uh, not given tenure when I was after I after seven or eight years there. And I became a psychotherapist. And, but I've been I was interested in uh, religion then in a very broad sense, very broad, very different way from when I entered the the monks. Yeah. And when you were a teenager and this was something obviously you must have been a precocious kid that you were thinking about dedicating your life to you know you just said this that you you loved the the life of a monk what did you like what did you love about it and and what about it attracted you to that kind of life in the first place i liked the i liked the 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 priests that i knew i thought Mm. they were terrific and i liked their lifestyle i liked everything about them i don't know that was the main thing i liked Mm. being their company i liked being involved with the catholic uh rituals and liturgy and the whole thing. I liked all that very much. I was drawn to it. I don't know why, yeah. but I was, I was very drawn to it. And, um, and, and I like the, I think I still like, I still feel like I'm a monk. So I think at that time, I, even though I'm married with children <laughs> and I, uh, I think what I liked was the, the, the combination of solitude and community. I'm not a terribly, I, I mean, some people disagree with me, but I don't feel that I'm a very sociable person. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I like solitude. I like being on my own. And I think that um, the monk's life cont- uh, offers a lot of solitude, although also community life. Yeah. So I was able to have both things. I didn't have to work at being sociable because I had a community right there as part of it very intense community. So it was just perfect for me. I have had so many conversations with friends of mine who are, you know, roughly my age, they're millennials, they're in their thirties who were born like I was in a, you know, religious environment. And some people took it seriously from an early age. Some didn't, I did. And eventually left. I think it's one of the, you know, better known facts about the young in the country is just how many people have left organized religion. You said this, you know, a bit ago that, you know, I, I think you said at age 26, you know, you woke up and something had left you. What was that? Was that a belief in the ideology and the structure of Catholicism? What do you make sense of, or how do you make sense of what exactly had, had, had left you at that time? Well, yes. Uh, uh, I felt that uh, you know th- this was at the in the late sixties and seventies, believe it yeah. or not, and and so it was a time of great change. Uh, that that particular those five or seven years where uh, the world looked felt like it was really changing radically, yeah. and I was changing, and I wanted to explore uh, new philosophies and new things new ways of thinking. And the, the Catholic Church, I felt it was also trying to become, uh, keep up with the times, but it didn't manage quite to do it. And I felt 
I, at that time, when I left, I felt that I couldn't represent the church, uh, hmm. honestly. Hmm. I know, too, that you alluded to this as well, and I, I knew this from reading some about your biography, that you know, at the end of what is, even if it's enjoyable, it's an extremely long educational process to get to the point where you are up for tenure, up for tenure. And I think that was at SMU, if I remember correctly, that yeah, when that right. is when that's denied, you know, I'm wondering, and I, I want to get into, you know, Jung and a lot of the you know Jungian concepts that yeah. I would imagine you were eventually, you know, influenced by, but Yes. Talk to me about that that moment. Was that a massive blow to you, or did you have yeah. a bit of a sense that this is the start of something new and even better? Well, both. I actually at first I thought it was a massive blow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I didn't know what to do because I loved being a college professor. I loved being on campus and, and had that life too. I liked that very much. I expected to do that for the rest of my life. I was absolutely shocked when the chairman of the department told me, who was a good friend of mine, told me that they had voted me out. And I thought, well, what am I going to do? And uh, he said, well, um, he could help me try to find something or I could appeal or something like that. And I, I told him, no, uh, I got the message. Um, I have this I have this fanciful idea of my own about mythology that um, when the angel speaks, I, I obey, I, I follow. There's a, there's a great story from Islam about that, where the angel appears and the person has to jump in a river. I mean, you just do whatever has to be done. And that's what I felt. This was the voice of my fate speaking to me, saying, move on. Mm. And so uh, I didn't I didn't pay any attention to all of his caveats and suggestions. I just thought that he doesn't understand it. He's speaking for the angel right now, and he's telling me to go on in my life. And uh, so I, I did that. I, I was very faithful to that voice, and I didn't look back at all. I just left the university, and um, people began asking me to, to be their therapist. And I had had training when I was in the university, not so much to be a therapist, but I trained as a therapist so that I could teach better and more psychologically aware. And so I was ready. I had I was able to get a license immediately and start practicing. Yeah. And I've been well, doing that ever since. The um yeah, I know I think you said that your PhD was was in religious studies. And um you know, one of my favorite interviews I have done in the couple of years that I've been doing this show was with Jim Hollis. And it's it's also one of the ones that clearly has resonated more than most in terms of the public imagination. This is another reason why I, I was so interested in, in talking to you. Mm -hmm. And for yourself at that time, when you're transitioning away from academia, as you said, you're listening to the the angels and you know, jumping into what I'm sure was a pretty unclear path of what eventually would happen to you in your life. What did you know about Jung at that time, or or you know the the primary foundations of that general worldview? Were you already fairly well steeped in that, or was that something you had to go explore? Yeah, you know, I can't remember exactly when I first really read Jung. I think it may have been when I was in college, still in the in the monastic life, mm -hmm. and um, I had some professors who were teaching uh, counseling psychology. I think I read Jung then, but just some basic, you know, uh, introduction to him. 
And uh, I was very interested in uh, Abraham Maslow and transpersonal psychology. I thought when I went to Syracuse, I would probably do my dissertation on on one of those characters, you know, fellows, one of those guys working in transpersonal psychology. But my very first seminar was about Jung. And I read, I was assigned to read the collective works of Jung. That's 20 volumes or 18 volumes, a very, very dense work. And I loved it. I ate it up. And uh, so I got very much into Jung there at Syracuse. So when I was teaching at the university later, uh, of course, I was very involved in and uh, with with uh, other young, I wasn't a Jungian. I've never been a Jungian myself. Yeah. I figured I knew what it was like to be a Catholic, and I didn't want to become another something. <laughs> I didn't want another Pope like Pope Jung. I didn't want that. So I uh, I avoided being a Jungian. I've never I've never. I, sometimes people introduce me as a Jungian, but I'm not. Mm. And uh, so, but Jung is a big influence, and I, I read him all the time, always, and I respect him tremendously. But I disagree with him in certain areas as well. So, and I just don't want to be a follower in that yeah. regard. So um, I, I, I speak to Jung societies regularly, and uh, I enjoy that very much. I just gave a talk to uh, Jungians in Moscow, and I just love wow. that, you know. Uh, speaking to uh, people all over the world who are our common thread is Jung's work. And it's very deep and inexhaustible. Um, I don't want to go on and on about it at this no. point, but I, I can say that uh, I, 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 I'm not so interested in the doctrine, the uh, the things you learn in an introductory volume on Jung. I'm interested in the more subtle and uh, deeper things that he did. Yeah. And I know it, it does seem like some of his concepts have you know, are percolating in just general culture more than maybe they were, you know, when earlier in your life, like the concept of the shadow, like some of the archetypes that have been popularized over the last few years, you know, to a lay audience that is completely unfamiliar with him as a man, the concepts that he espoused. And like you said, I mean, I, uh, I identify with this as well as somebody who is not interested in really joining groups or being an ism in any way. Um, how did how do you think he influenced you? What about his work still resonates with you? And and you know maybe even more importantly, where where is the disagreement there? Well, the first thing let's talk about the things that influenced me and that yeah. I really like. Uh, the very first thing that that appealed to me was that I had I was when I read him I was still in the wake of being in the monastery, and uh, I read a. a uh, his book called Ion, which is about Christianity. And he took some of the uh, ideas of Christianity, the theology and the ritual, and he deepened it by looking at it as a matter of the psyche. I can't use, I don't want to say he psychologized it, he didn't do that, but he he interpreted the ritual in terms of the, of the psyche, what, was go- what goes on in the psyche. I liked that very much, and it helped me because I was able then to to find new value, a, a way into that material that I had rejected when I left the monastery. But I uh, I was able to find new life in it, really. So that was the first step. And after that, I just really loved his work on alchemy. And uh, I don't know, that, all of the work he had done on and uh, he used theology primarily for as a resource for his psychology, which suited me fine because I knew theology. I know Latin very well, so I was able to 
you know, follow all of his work and with his Latin sources. And uh, I felt very much at home with him and uh, his the depth of what he did, I thought was fantastic. And the way he lived uh, just really appealed to me, the things he did in his own life, very important to me. Yeah. I remember this is something that I remember Jim mentioned to me during the conversation when we were talking about him, which was that I didn't know this about his own biography, that Jung was, I think, from a family of religious leaders and yes. that his, his his father had been a i think a clergyman and you know jim mentioned that in jung's retelling of his own life his father had crippling depressions throughout his life and when jung would press his father on some of the contradictions in his religious ideology his dad would just say you know we just believe we just believe and we don't ask those sort of questions and i think my understanding of his analysis of his father is that, you know, he came to, you know, obviously it, it seemed like he loved his, his father, but had a, a difficult time with his father's inability to, to courageously address his concerns and not kind of go his own way. Um, is that your understanding of, of his life as well? And cause you, you mentioned this too, that he, he has a mystical religious undertone or even overt, flavor to a lot of what he says. Is that true? Is that the story you understand well, about his life? To be, to be honest, I'm not too interested in his father. I, have yeah. To say. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know that part of his life doesn't interest me as much as later when he, uh, he, he lived a, as a magician. I wrote an article about this recently uh, for a Jungian uh, volume about Jung the Magus, Jung the magician. And I felt that his... Um, his uh, creating, you know, he learned how to do uh, uh, what do you call it? Stone carving. He learned that. He learned how to work with stone. There was a stone quarry near him, and he learned from those experts there how to carve. And he carved uh, in his bowling and stone. He carved uh, images that are very interesting and archaic and mysterious. And he wrote in many languages on that stone. Mm -hmm. So uh, that appeals to me, the, the idea of magical language and, and secret figures. Uh, I did my dissertation on uh, Renaissance magic. So I'm very interested in Jung as a magician and Magus. And I don't I don't hear that from Jungians. And I never heard anyone talk about him that way. But I, I think that's who he is for me. That part appeals to me, how he lived his life magically. He, he wrote things in books that were, you know, he didn't just write out notes. He wrote, as we know from the Red Book and the Black Book and other books of his, that he he wrote with uh, images and, and in Latin and uh, with uh, special calligraphy. This is all the work of magic. It's not it's not a it's not a psychologist that who is working rationally, trying to rationalize the, the human being. It's, and then that was his life. He lived his life that way, making a, t a tower, a house, a little house for him to live in and work in, and to uh, put a put stone carvings in his own house where where he lived. So all of that to me is of great interest. That's what I meant when I said that I'm interested in his personal life for that reason. Um, I. I, I don't know much. I, I mean, I've read his, I've read uh, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, his so-called maybe autobiographical sketches uh, many, many times. But I'm not too interested in in his early life and what, what influenced him that way as I am in his, in his later life where he really 
came to the fullness of his life and was able to live uh, at, at, like in two dimensions at once. He was a mystic yeah. and, a, and, a, and a magician. And I love that. I try to do that for myself. I try to live not just on this plane. I try to live on more than one plane at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And I was going to save this for later in the conversation, but this mm-hmm. is a book I'm likely going to buy for my brother for for uh, for Christmas, which was is about archetypes, which I think we have you know briefly talked about today. King, warrior, magician, lover. And when you say magician about him, what do you mean by that word when you apply it to 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 Jung and his life and what he embodied? There's so much. I wrote it. <laughs> Uh, it's uh, what it is, is that uh, there is a long tradition in the West, also in the East, but a long tradition in the Western, the Western world of magic, the people who are magicians. That is, they try and they all say they are natural music- magicians. That means they're not doing supernatural things. They're trying to use the natural world and our natural abilities in a way that we have more power and that we have mysterious powers that we can do things that are not just rationally clear, not mechanical, but that they come from understanding the secrets of nature. That's uh, that's the way they talk. The magicians talk that way. And Jung understood this. He read these magicians. Paracelsus, for example, he he writes about quite often in his work, who was uh, in that tradition. So um, I've studied these uh, people in in that tradition quite a bit. And so... um, for me, magic then is being in the world in such a way that you can accomplish things uh, uh, not in a in a direct mechanical way, but by mysteriously understanding the rather hidden powers in the world. For example, it's but it's very natural. For example, to choose a good book title mm-hmm. or a cover for a book, that takes magic. It's not rational. You can try to be rational about that, and you won't get anywhere. You need to be able to somehow know how to live in this world magically to choose the proper colors. They always discuss this, colors, images, uh, uh, lines, forms, words that are magic words, words with power. That's that's a different way of being, and uh, that's what the magician can do and can add to our normal life. And that's what Jung did. He was a magician. He, if you read him as a, as a magus, uh, I think you understand him a lot better than if you read him as a psychologist. Yeah. And I want to get on, into your work very quickly here, but I, you, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up, that you had mentioned that you know, he, he had an influence on you, but that there were also you know, clear disagreements that you have come to have with some of his work or his ideas. What are those? What are the things that you would, you know, ask that people keep in mind, or just observations that you've made that you think are um, in in conflict with him? Many of these uh, problems I have, I, I I shared with my my good friend James Hillman, mm-hmm. who uh, was was clo- was uh, a Jungian, very very much much more of a authentic Jungian than I've ever been. But uh, at the same time, same time, he was a radical. He went his own way. And I followed him. We became friends when I was at Syracuse. And we were friends for 38 years. And, you know, just had endless conversations about these things. And uh, so Jim thought at the beginning of his work, Hillman thought that uh, 
Jung made a big mistake in equating or describing the anima and animus in terms of gender. That's that's one thing that, that I agree with him from the very beginning with Hillman, uh, that, that this is a mistake to read anima and animus in Jung as having to do with uh, the anima as the man's unconscious and the animus as the woman's unconscious. And we just let go of that and it frees it up to talk about anybody having to deal with their soul and spirit, uh, try to cultivate their soul and cultivate their spirit, whatever your gender is. So that's a great relief uh, when you do that with Jung. Hmm. It's one thing. Another is that Jung tends to be uh, monotheistic psychologically. That means that he, he's looking for wholeness for the one, for the self. Uh, I don't use those words. Uh, Hillman didn't use those words. We don't talk about a self the way Hillman did, or the way Jung did. We don't talk about wholeness at all, looking for wholeness. Uh, Hillman wrote one of his first essays, was called Psychological Polytheism, which means that we're not looking for wholeness anywhere. We're looking for integration. We're looking for an acceptance and a an embrace of all the multiplicity that doesn't have to be resolved uh, within the psyche or within ourselves or our world. That is a really major different orientation toward the world. And uh, and Jung went in a very different direction. And I, I feel very liberated not having to go in the Jung's direction in that regard. Yeah. I know probably for most people who are familiar with you, clearly one of the ways in which they are most likely to be familiar with you is from your best-selling book, Care of the Soul. And, you know, soul is not a word that at least I hear that much in contemporary American dialogue. And I, maybe just the best way to segue into this part of the conversation is because I've heard you speak in, in interviews about, you know, your distinguishing definitions between spirit and soul, if I remember correctly. And it probably makes sense for me to just allow you to to speak to that of 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 answering the question, what in your mind, what is a soul? What is what is the what is a human soul? The soul is is uh, is a word used. It's been used for centuries. Plato talked about the soul. Aristotle wrote a book on the soul. Uh, the people, the people in the Renaissance that I studied, used to, talked about soul and trying to bring soul to culture. It's not a new idea. It's throughout history, and uh, but people think sometimes that it, this is something new that we have brought forward. No, it's not. It's very ancient. And what it means really is the uh, uh, the uh, mysterious. Uh, uh, source of our life. It's the mysterious soul. Is the mysterious um, soul a source of our life that's bigger than we are, and yet at the same time is the source of our identity. Hmm. It's the soul. The soul is there. Uh, I can't want to say in us. Jung said that we are in the soul. I like that better. Hmm. Um, that uh, that the the soul is is that source of our life and it's bigger than us in a way it's who we are and yet it's bigger than who we are so um we have a relationship to soul and uh, jung was very big about that uh, we have to have this connection relation to soul but not identify with it and yet at the same time it does give us our sense of who we are and uh, and it is uh it's also uh very mysterious and then primarily 
uh, and this is also Jung's idea, that it uh, shows itself in images. So like dreams, the images we have in dreams, almost like raw expressions of soul. They're very difficult to understand, but if you can really get into dreams, I mean, I've been working with dreams as a therapist now for 40 years. I just trust them so much. And I feel that uh, that when I close my eyes sometimes, I'm just sitting around, close my eyes, immediately I'm in a, I'm in a dream place. I mean, like I'm in some, I, I can be in some uh, scenario, some scene, and I don't know where it came from, but it's right there and I'm in it. And giving me the impression that I'm always in some sort of scene, imaginal scene. And that's just like a dream. It's like entering the dream world very easily. It's though we're always there, but we don't know it all the time. That We are dreaming, in a sense, more intensely than we are waking, doing our waking life. And uh, so that's a part of soul, that it expresses itself in images, very much like dream images. Uh, so... Uh, a spirit is is very different. Uh, they used to say, the philosophers have said that soul is what makes us human, human beings, makes us, gives us our humanity and our connection with each other. It's very deep, deep down and deep in life. Spirit is a very different direction. It moves us away from our individuality in a way, away from our context of our lives and toward the mysterious, which is beyond us in a way, transcendent. Uh, and so the spirit tends to, uh, the spiritual images often point to the sky, like a steeple on a church, you know, it points to the sky and disappears up there in the sky. Mm. And uh, so... Uh, the spirit is, but it's wonderful. I mean, it's absolutely essential. And spirit and soul uh, overlap, and they really need each other. And yet they're, they're very, very different. So in my life, I have devoted myself very much to the spiritual life. In a way, I discovered soul in uh, somewhat in Jung, but I, I had a very soulful experience as a monk, too. The community life and uh, good times and a lot of fun and good food and all that kind of thing is part of the life of the soul. Yeah. There are a few quotes from your book, Care of the Soul, that I, I'd love to read out. And there's one in particular mm -hmm. I would love to get your get your feedback on. And these are mm -hmm. just a few. Often care of the soul means not taking sides when there is a conflict at a deep level. It may be necessary to stretch the heart wide enough to embrace contradiction and paradox. The basic intention in any caring, physical or psychological, is to alleviate suffering. But in relation to the symptom itself, observance means, first of all, listening and looking carefully at what is being revealed in the suffering. An intent to heal can get in the way of seeing. And this is the one I wanted to get your thoughts on, which I think dovetails into the comment you just made. One day I would like to make up my own DSM 111 with a list of quote unquote disorders I have seen in my practice. For example, I would want to include the diagnosis quote, psychological modernism unquote, an uncritical acceptance of the values of the modern world. It includes blind faith in technology, inordinate attachment to material gadgets and conveniences, uncritical acceptance of the march of scientific progress devotion to the electronic media, 
and a lifestyle dictated by advertising. I don't know that there's a quote that could be more apropos to the moment that we kind of find ourselves in culturally. And I, I think it's becoming a lot wider known about the addictiveness and the um, the downsides of a lot of these, you know, gadgets that um, probably weren't weren't invented at the time the book was written. I'd love for you to comment on that last quote specifically. You say you'd like to write your own DSM 111, along with the following sentences there. Any feedback or any additional commentary or context that comes to mind when you hear that read read aloud? Well, yes, I forgot that I wrote that. Of course, that was a long time ago. Um, but I, uh, yes, I, I, I think what it what it reminds me of is that I do think that uh, many of the things that we take for granted in our world are neurotic, mm. basically neurotic. So they should be included on a list of disorders. For example, uh, being uh, being so devoted to our machines and neglecting our humans around us—that's crazy. That is highly neurotic. Uh, that that uh, people doing that should be, you know, immediately sent into treatment. I mean, it's that's the way it is. Uh, it's neurotic, but we take it for granted that it's okay. Um, there's so many things like that. Uh, the uh, devotion to celebrity means that we lose. I think it means that we we suck the soul out of ourselves when we put so much into celebrities. Like we're putting all of our what the uh, Freudians would call. Um, uh, affect or libido into other people instead of finding it within ourselves. We don't understand, we don't appreciate our own celebrity. Mm. We don't realize that each of us is a celebrity. We are each, we each of great value, and we don't need to pour out all of that attention on somebody else just because they have money or fame or they've made a movie. That's no big deal, really. Yeah. Uh, but we do, we, we put it on these other people or on sports people who are usually in their lives, not very exemplary, you know. And uh, so uh, what we need to do, I think, is if we want to have any celebrities, they should be people of great compassion or great uh, intellect or heart, but not uh, not not the way we do it. The, 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 those people, what the, the people that we put all that celebrity onto, uh, but they 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 steal in a way steal the the uh, the love the libido from us, and uh, we need it for ourselves. So that is also a big problem. It's a problem that requires some therapy. Yeah, I know. You know, just in my own life, in uh, an attempt to kind of alter my own habits to to get you know into circumstances and environments that are less tech addicted and distracting it is very difficult these days to find you know um, consistently find environments that are analog that don't inevitably um, contain the gadgets and the devices and the distractedness and you know for me it's often of just a few you know solitude which you talked about earlier just being able to kind of relish in time by yourself you know, swimming pools where by definition, electronic gadgets can't really exist without breaking workout classes where humans are together, kind of pushing themselves, maybe libraries. And, you know, I guess you know, this is something I remember 
hearing you say in interviews that I was watching uh, before this conversation about how um, I would imagine this is related to what you know you loved and have fond memories about your time in you know being a monk is the space for holiness. And I remember as a kid personally just going to c- Catholic church before I really understood anything about what was being said there that there was just an internal sense that this is a sacred place. It's a place where people come to be quiet and to listen to music and to stop the you know the the chaos of their own life for some contemplation and reflection. You know, you've spent decades of your life talking to people who have come to you for you know venting and advice and guidance and feedback. What do you see now or what did you what have you seen in your life that you you think are consistently leading to the neurosis and some of it's probably contained in that quote I just read out but just in terms of practical advice or feedback for modern people who are caught up in this culture and are trying to have some semblance of the holy or the peaceful um what pieces of feedback or advice or observations do you have for people who you know are on a they may not be religious in the traditional sense but they do have a a hunger for the elements of spirituality that I think have generally always been there with human beings. I, I yeah, I, I uh, really focused on this in a book uh, a few years ago called "The Religion of One's Own," yeah. where I tried to to see to explore. It's a it's an issue of great interest to me. How do we find a religious life in our world today without uh, when the 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 religion institutions have failed us essentially in so many ways um I think one thing we can do is again return to the sacred the I uh, uh, where well, I live in New England and uh, I think that the transcendentalists of New England Emerson and and Emily Dickinson and uh, Henry David Thoreau um it taught us that you can be say you can be religious in a world without the institutions and uh and Thoreau thought it was best, and so did Emily Dickinson through nature. And one of the first major writings of Emerson was called Nature. And uh, he he also gave us a very famous address to Harvard University, where he also emphasized the natural world and its magic and its its blessings and its holiness. So that's one place we can look. We can look to nature not just as a as material as uh, material for our own purposes, but as a place of mystery and teaching. The nature can teach us how to live. So that's a very important thing. And so the, I, would, I would say that, um, although, I'm, of course, I'm interested in climate change, but climate change is only a small part of preserving nature because we need nature for our soul. We need nature in order to continue to be human beings. That's that's one thing, um, and the other thing is I'm not really against tech, machines and technology. I think we are developing in that direction, and we need them, and we can use them and enjoy them. Um, I love uh, writing on my computer. It's you know, anyone tries to take it away from me, they're going to have a problem. Uh, but on the other hand, you don't have to, you don't have to surrender your humanity or see that. 
you know, look at our future and say, well, uh, in, in another hundred years, just think of all the new machines we're going to have. My question would be, how are marriages going to be in a hundred years? What about raising children? Will we, we be able to do that better? What about having streets that are safe to walk on? You know, things like that. Those are the things that matter. Those are matters of soul. So I wish that we could not just reduce everything to machinery. That's our mistake. It's not the technology. It's the way we deal with technology and let it dominate. Fair. You know, I know this is another you know comment that I remember hearing you um, say, and with probably the most famous interviewer on the world when you talked to Oprah, and you were, you know, basically I think making the argument that you view the you know exodus on a large scale in the in the west away from organized religion as a great thing um and a, an indication if i remember correctly of your words of maturity of a maturing civilization and i i'd love to get your thoughts on that idea and what you see happening right now as you know by the tens of millions the children of my parents generation are leaving Christianity by and large or organized religion in general what you make of that and if it is in your mind a you know a great evolution or an opportune moment how can we make it opportune what are the what are the real opportunities here i think that we uh yes the the institutions uh not really not entirely through their own fault though i think partly because of their own fault are uh, they're not keeping up their retrenching and that's that, that's to their detriment uh but i think that uh, uh we the rest of us what we have to do is discover how to grow up and be more mature so many people are religious in a childish way they 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 mouth things they learned when they were kids the catholics from their catechism you know and that's not what an adult needs and so we have to grow up and get away from that. Uh, there, there is a mama and papa. The Pope is the papa, you know, il papa in, in Italian. He's the Pope. He's the, he's the father. And we, and Freud said that that we have a father, you know, in our notion of God. Um, we have to, we have to grow up and not just relate to the world in any way, even in relation to our own parents. Uh, without separating from parents. We need to be individuals and adults. That means shaping our own religious and spiritual lives. And we can shape them. As I said, you can shape them through uh, through nature. Another important way you can do it is through the arts. I think the arts are very close to religion. And uh, if if we could bring... Uh, if I don't think most people understand what art is all about at all. But it's a very profound thing. In a way, you were talking about archetypes before. I'd like to talk about that as we go along Please, somewhere. Absolutely. Often misunderstood. But I think that um, the images of art, are they're living images that we can relate to. And they're not just pictures of the world. They're not just representations of anything. They are revelations of the, of the invisible world that we live with every day. So the arts are almost almost religion you know they're very very close and i think that uh, that's another way in which we could grow up by making the arts more part of our lives and but appreciate them not for the artist skill or making celebrities of the artists 
but of realizing that the arts allow us to engage our dream figures. The mysterious figures that come in our dreams come in paintings and sculptures and music and plays and things like that. And uh, it's very, very, these these things are sacred, the plays and paintings and so on. We don't know how to relate to them. The religions of the world do teach us how to do that. For example, in India, people talk about looking at a, a painting as darshan. That means uh, a, a holy in, encounter with one of the great invisible figures of life, one of the great mysteries and powers of life. You, you go to look at a statue, that's what you encounter. And uh, we don't understand that. So um, that, that's another place. I can't go into all of it, but that, those are two areas in which we could direct our attention and find the sacred and not need the, uh, the traditions, except uh, I would... I, I do think it's important. Uh, the traditions have so much beauty and so much of its value. We could still be nourished by them, but uh, as authoritative sources and as moral authorities, I think I think that time is over. It's a good time, and that's a good thing. We we have to find our own morality and our own ethics. Yeah, I get the sense that many people are trying to do that right now, and they're they're hungry for you know, a North Star or various North Stars that can lead them to, you know, an iteration or a, a better ethical framework through which to to live one's life. You know, when you look around and you see the country, I know you live in, in, in New England and the U.S., who do you see living wisely in that area of life? You know, you mentioned nature, you mentioned the arts. Um, I don't know if you, you know, have a label for yourself in terms of how you identify or don't identify religiously at this point, but I'd love to get many commentary you have on that of where people might be able to look for wise instruction in that area. Uh, there's a lot of bad instruction around. <laughs> I can start with that. You have to be careful. Don't don't buy into so much. There's so much that so many people that present themselves as you know knowing all of that. They they, they and I'm disappointed most of the time. I, I would say that um, today uh, uh, people would be, I don't know, I, I, I can't expect people to do what I do. I'm not, I don't know any modern people really to follow. I don't have anyone that I follow that way. Hmm. Um, I Here and there, you know, some, some, uh, some talent and some wisdom, but uh, generally speaking, uh, I don't see it. And so therefore, I think that's, the dead poets are the thing we have to rely on. And uh, so we that's the play, you know, The Frogs by Aristophanes. Um, they, they have to go for the dead poets. And I think that's where we are. So I read Emerson and Thoreau and Emily Dickinson. And I, uh, I, I read so many of the old, you know, people have gone before us um, that have, it's been proven that they're, you know, after, over time that they really have something to say. I follow them. I, I read the Tao Te Ching every day, practically. Um, I, uh, I I like reading uh, Thomas Merton, the Catholic monk. I, I I do I do in a certain sense still consider myself Catholic. I don't want to give it all away to the to what contemporary Catholic leadership is doing. Um, so uh, in that regard, I think that. Uh, We'd be better off studying. 
I think that one of the things that we could learn to do from the monks is to study and learn. I don't know if people realize that that study can be part of life today and, and uh, you know, collecting uh, really good uh good sources for our study. That's the thing you have to do. You have to learn what's good and uh and 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 teach yourself, learn rather than just go to a workshop somewhere where someone is probably giving you their own complexes. Just what I tend to see. So I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't trust that. I trust the I I, I tell people sometimes I don't read a book that is uh, uh has newer than you know, 500 years ago. Yeah. 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 I got that sense too. And learning about you that, you know, you're big into the, the Greeks and the antiquity and, you know, you mentioned the Renaissance and for people that, you know, may have read that and some of that in high school, but really haven't visited it in 15, 20 years and are now adults. Yes. They may agree with you. They look around and they see, I thought that was very well put, that a lot of modern, you know, internet gurus are really just inflicting their own complexes on their audience. Um, yeah, again, like you, you've you mentioned um, the arts as a component, nature as a component of a what seems like a, you know, a wise and beautiful life. Are there any other principles or insights that come to mind when you read those authors, when you read those poets, when you read the Tao Te Ching? What else would you offer to a modern audience who, you know, has that hunger, but like you might be suspicious of the the modern answers that are given to, given by people who are alive today? Well, the the main message of the Tao Te Ching is to uh, not to push, not to not to force anything. Let life, uh, let they say, let things take their course, uh, and if you can allow life, if you can live your life that way, where you. I say I would say read the signs. Like I told the story of hearing an angel speak, when my the head of my department told me I I shouldn't continue in the uh, life of a college professor. That's a kind of, you know, that's that's a t- looking at things differently than just literally and factually. Yeah. And I learned that by looking whenever I go and when I travel, I always go and look at paintings of the Annunciation, where this angel appears to the Virgin Mary and says, you're going to be pregnant. It's like a message comes. And you look at some of these paintings of angels and these, they show these ribbons of words coming out of their mouths. It's as though they give us words, words that are angelic words. And... Uh, so uh, that's that's a theological way of thinking, and but I'm I'm taking the this great teaching of the of the Annunciation, and I'm making it part of my life. I'm saying that sometimes I hear when people speak to me, I hear that must be the angel speaking, and I also know from the story of Islam, one of my favorite stories, where I've mentioned before, where the angel comes to this man and tells him to do all these things, and and he just follows. He follows whatever the angel says. He just changes his life every time. And at the end, he becomes a holy man. And people come to him for uh, direction because, and they say to him at the end of the story, how did you get to be this holy man with all this wisdom? And he says, well, it's really, I can't tell you. It's too hard to, it's a story I can't tell. Because all he did was, he did what the angel said. Now, if we could live that way, if we could read the signs and move with that faith in life, 
and move in, in directions that are not all directed by our ego, by our self. You know, let's get rid of all that stuff and be more, that's a more religious thing to read the signs, to obey rather than to have to be in charge all the time. So there's a very, there's a way of looking at some traditional religious teachings, but taking them in a new way, in a deeper way uh, for our own daily existence. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I think, yeah, this is something that I remember Jim Hollis mentioning during my conversation with him. And I know he's sort of famous in his niche of the, you know, that world for the idea, which he may have very well gotten from Jung, that the first half of life is is one inevitable giant mistake that is the the role of that phase of life is to develop enough ego strength to be able to survive in the world. And that the second half of life is a often a different, you know, phase and a different calling. Um, I think people are trying oftentimes to rectify and balance their own ego with some of the the aspects that we've talked about during this conversation, whether it's their spirituality, whether it's listening to um you know, serendipity or signs that, you know, I think you would look back on your life and say we're instrumental in having you become who you are. How do you think about that, that interplay between, you know, one's necessary ego for daily life and then also, you know, leaving space for something slightly more mystical, something that's um, more in line with the, the sacred? I'd love to get your thoughts on that, too. Well, I think you have to live more of a, as a mystic, really. That's if there's if the uh, if the ego for daily life has a place, it's minor. It doesn't have to be very. It's not that important. Um, what's really important is the myth we live, the myth, the the deeper story. Everything we do every day, the slightest thing, is related to our deeper myth, the deeper story, the narrative that we don't uh, we are not in charge of that we have to. You know that that comes to us. I like when I look at my life. We've been talking about it. Uh, uh, I think that uh, I'm amazed at how things have come together for me uh, without my 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 uh, direction. You know that. I mean, I thought I I thought I would stay home with my family, and I loved my family when I was a kid. I loved absolutely loved that wonderful family. And I left them. I, I departed from them, you know, for good, really, when I was 13, so young. And I was homesick for about five years. You know, I just couldn't, and pain, pain in my heart, just physical pain of homesickness, did all that. But I felt that was, this is my destiny. This is, you know, something else is directing it. So when I woke up one morning and said, well, I've done this, I didn't work that out in my mind. It just, it was an awareness and it was time to follow a new direction. So I did, without knowing where to go next, not thinking it was a smart thing to do. I didn't, it was a dumb thing to do, really. I didn't know what to do. And the same thing all along when I was fired from the university. This was a sign. I've got to move on, you know, move it. Now I've got to move in a different direction because I'm not obviously writing this story. It's not my story to put together. I have to follow. I have to follow it. I think that's the essence of religion, to follow, uh, to to obey rather than to have to be in charge all the time. I think that's the really a big, huge 
principle of life, whether you're going to have a sacred life or a secular one. Uh, you don't choose when you live a sacred life. You follow and you obey. You may have just answered this, but this is something I'm glad you brought up again, which is the concept of religion in general. And probably the best way to ask this is just to ask it simply, which is how do you define religion or religiosity? I'd love to get your just general feedback on that, which I think you've already alluded to in some ways. I think religion in its essence is uh, the uh, individual and communities uh, responding to the mysteries of life, the mysterious in life. That's Mysterious is the most important thing. Mm. Uh, there are so many mysteries in this world and we ignore them. We think we can make everything. Like, let's say you get sick. Modern medicine treats you, your sickness, as a as something going wrong in the mechanism of your body. Uh, people in religions around the world in older times understood uh, sickness as a as a message, really, as a as one of these messages, the angel appearing and saying, uh, uh, "You're going to go in a different direction now, and, and you better pay attention to this illness." And, uh, and and realize it has meaning. It's not just it's not just a physical event that just happens. Mm. It can't be explained that way. Um, one of my uh, one of my uh, colleagues years ago, Ivan Illich, was a Catholic priest. At one time, became a philosopher, and he used to say he wanted to die of death. He didn't want to die of any illness. Mm. And that's how I feel. I think that what he said there is very profound, and has to do with in his teaching also with everything that uh, we have to be human beings, first of all, so that we are not going to die from some illness that a doctor proclaims. We're going to die because we, it's time for us to die. Mm. And I think that mystery of the approach of death, thinking of it as this mystery uh, that we now have to encounter, or illness as this mystery that we have to deal with, or meeting someone and now this mystery, we might want to get married. That's a great mystery too. Or having children, tremendous mystery. I've been involved uh, quite a bit actually in the in the birthing movement, you know, trying to get people to humanize and bring soul to birthing uh, as well as dying. Because these are these are moments that are sacred, and if you're going to live a life of soul, then you uh, you don't treat them as mechanical things, but you treat them as mysteries, and that's religion. Yeah, and in those moments, and you've already talked about some of those, you know, what seems like more religious moments in your life. Perhaps the most notable, at least during this conversation, was the decision not to fight the rejection from SMU, which led you into a completely different type of life and has led you in many ways to write the books you did and you know have this conversation today do you mark that up as intuition you know that it's people would be wise to trust that instinct even if it flies in the face of you know modern wisdom that you might be receiving from your peer group how would you you know give words to those moments that are maybe triggering a necessary leap or you know decision that may not make a ton of sense or requires a degree of you know faith whether you re regard that in a religious context or a secular one how do you think about that i think about it religiously 
Yeah. And I use my my own background in religion. So I've been saying to you that I listen to the angel. Uh, I I believe in angels. I'm not naively, not stupidly, not literally, but I do think that uh, there are moments that we come to where we are um, kind of pushed along and we come to a point where uh, our future is revealed to us, our destiny is revealed to us in some way, and we can respond to that. That's a very religious way of looking at it, but I'm not... It's, I'm not going to church to do that. Mm. Uh, I'm not following their rules and saying this is how you have to believe and this is how you have to live. I this is I'm learning from the religions that this is how it works, and they call them angels. And well, it's a much better word to me than intuition, mm. uh, because the intuition puts it in ourselves and like some some talent we have almost like you know like there must be something like an intuitive brain something organ relating to it uh, i'd rather use religious language for it uh loosely and uh, or deeply rather than uh, literally and and naively the way religion is often used it's very hard to talk about because it sounds people could look hear what i'm saying and think oh how stupid you know and what what's is he still one of these naive catholics no but I still may be Catholic, but I'm I'm not naive, and uh, I do feel that uh, part of our life is our getting along in life is to have a religious life, and many of these existential religious experiences, like obeying what, what the signs that you see, that's a religious act as far as I'm concerned, and you may go to the religions and learn. Uh, from their stories, um, how that happens and how they imagine it, and that can be very fruitful to you. But you don't have to go and believe in it. You don't have to sign up for that religion in order to do that. You learn from the religion, and then you take it to yourself, and to, you see how you experience that, and you create a life that is more a religious life. But it is not religious by being a, by going to a particular church. Yeah. We talked about this briefly earlier in the conversation, and it sounds like it's something that you know um, still you know is important to you and re- resonates with you, which is archetypes. And you know, I've had conversations on this show about a lot of different subjects, and one recently that has come up a couple of times is men in America, men in the West, and the the issues that I think a lot of men are are facing. You know, Jim Hollis said that when he started doing therapy work 40 years ago, it was nine women to one man, and now it's inverted. Um, I talked to a guy named Richard Reeves who wrote a book called Of Boys and Men recently, and it's all about the the data of the decline of men in virtually every area of society. And one of his one of Richard's points during the conversation is that there, the script for what it means to be a man now is a bit ambiguous for a lot of, especially younger men, and that in the void and in the vacuum of that reality, there are internet personalities that are coming along and acting as digital father figures or you know, little gurus that people begin to follow their every word and kind of worship them. And I'd love to give you some space to talk about 
you know, archetypes in general, maybe from antiquity or from, you know, hundreds of years ago that, or religion, um, that you think are important for us maybe to keep in mind, especially related to, to men. I don't know if anything comes to mind with that specifically. I read the name of the, the book about archetypes that I'm likely going to buy pretty quickly here, but I just want to put that to you and give you, you know, a little bit of time and space to talk about what archetypes are and how they relate to, you know, how we might think about a life well-lived and, you know, a, another way of having a, maybe a North star for conduct, for ethics, et cetera. Well, this is a complex topic. Um, remember that, uh, when I talk about archetypes, that again, I'm not going to follow Jung. Yeah, I don't follow Jung that closely. You know, uh, I, I have great, great respect for Jim Hollis. I saw him not that long ago, and uh, uh, really, really love his uh, his whole being. He's a wonderful man, um, but he's Jungian, you know, and I'm not, and we're a little different. I, yeah. I. Uh, so the archetype for me is closer to Hillman's work, where uh, Hillman says that his archetypal psychology is not a is not a psychology of archetypes; it's an archetypal psychology. That means we can look at any images, any image archetypally. We can look and see anything at all. I could I could do a little riff on your microphone probably and see it as an archetypal image. Hmm. Anything. You know anything at all yep. is is capable of being seen as an image that uh, opens up the world uh, to uh, to meaning uh, in a particular way. So it's not so much that there are these archetypes around, but that um, and this is why I also differ so much from Robert Moore's work about the warrior and so on. I mean, I think it's great work. It's great to do it, but. Uh, I differ in my my approach to it. So they're not these particular archetypes. Um, I do I do in my own teaching. I teach mythology, and talk about the role of Hermes and Aphrodite and Artemis and uh, Hermes in our daily life. Um, those are mythic images, and I guess you could call them archetypes loosely. But I'd rather save that word uh, because it tends to then give us these too limited notion of what an archetype is. Yeah. It's it's something very deep that really moves us. And uh, so there may be an archetype of a teacher, you know, that might be an archetype that, that we're only looking at the teacher archetypally, really. We're saying that that there, there is a, a way in which uh, the image of teacher uh, enters into education, let's say. And the, the real teacher is not that person up there giving us information. It's that that teacher enacts and almost like he's on stage and brings to life the, the archetypal teacher, the power of teaching. Teaching is one thing human beings can do. Archetypes are things that human beings can do. They're powers of human beings. And uh, so we could take anything, the midwife archetype, if you want, the the secretary archetype, you know, uh, everything is archetypal from a certain point of view, but you see that it is not literal. It's not just because someone is playing the role doesn't mean that they are the one doing the work. They are able to elicit and evoke this 
mystery uh, teacher, this mystery secretary, this mystery interviewer, <laughs> you know, this mystery person. And uh, so what's going on here is mythic. It's not just uh, what is that, uh, available to plain sight. So that's that's an interesting way of looking at things. Um, Hillman was particularly good at looking at mythology as archetypal, that is, as being able to, uh, let's say, the image of, uh, he did some great work with the image of uh, of, of uh, Hermes, for example, that that when we're trying to communicate as we you and I are doing here, we would be we would be uh, very well off if somehow between us we could evoke the the image of Hermes, and you read Hermes and among the Greeks because that's that's where you get that name, and you find that he that all these qualities of Hermes, if we could have them here in our conversation, we would have a Hermes power in our in our conversation that might have an effect on a listener that's quite powerful, more than what you and I can actually do ourselves. But we have evoked and we have made present the mystery, the Hermes mystery. And that's why um, myself and many others uh, have studied mythology to try to do an archetypal uh, description of human life and human experiences. Yeah, I... I know I talked to a few people who um, are interested in your work and was indicating that I was going to be talking to you over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, to play devil's advocate here, right? So this was a case study that had always stuck with me from, you know, psych 101 classes. And to some degree, I'm kind of going through this in my own personal life right now, where I have a very close friend who is battling, uh, an extreme mental illness right now. And I'm witnessing in real time what can happen to a brain um, in a circumstance in which it is uh, in a radically altered state. And it is as though I'm watching one of my closest friends for the last 20 years embody the same physical entity, but there's a totally different person in there. And it reminds me of the story of, you know, Phineas Gage, which had always stuck with me from college, who was a, I think a railroad worker in the 19th century, who was a mild mannered pastor, con deeply conservative man, very well respected in his community, who had a, um, a metal rod through an accident blasted through the front of his brain. And he never lost consciousness after the accident, but who he was before that happened to him and who he was afterwards were two completely different people. The who Phineas Gage became afterwards was a, you know, drinking, womanizing, foul-mouthed, irresponsible person, someone who would be un, almost unrecognizable to the man his friends would have known before the accident. I feel that way to some degree in what I'm witnessing in my own personal life. And for, you know, to give the modern scientific lens it's due in terms of the way that you know we are trying in a sort of consilience way to understand what it means to be human what it means to have a soul have a brain and how that brain can be and soul can be perturbed based upon what happens to it physically how do you respond to examples like that when people you know are curious about 
the the soul in general and how that concept can really fit into circumstances like that and you know there are instances of multiple personality disorder where you know the beating heart rate of people who are flipping from one personality to another are seemingly like different people living inside the same body i just knew that was something i wanted to put to you to get your feedback on in terms of somebody who has thought a lot about you know these concepts and souls in in particular well uh, first of all uh there is a uh, obviously an interesting relation between body and soul i mean they we can be sick physically and it can certainly affect how we feel how we what we can do how we might behave our personality and so on might be affected by that that's part of life it's certainly true um the physical uh but but just because we have a physical impetus to affect us and change who we are doesn't mean that our that our soul is not there and that we can't do therapeutic work with the soul, even in those circumstances, it can be done. Um, I've worked with uh, people with, I know sometimes some people say that it doesn't exist, but with multiple personalities, and uh, and so affected not only by physical problems, but like like the brain, but also by uh, tremendous uh, abuse yeah. you know a great deal of abuse can also make a person behave in a way that they are not themselves or complexes can take over a person part, partly due to the way they were raised you know then and that's also part of the story the, the, the story of their life this is extremely important and to who they are so they may have these complexes that 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 these like Jung called them, sort of minor personalities within the psyche uh, that, that come forward, and the person has no control over them. I think we we all have complexes that can affect us any day. Uh, an inferiority complex, I think most people can get into easily. You know, you meet someone who reminds you what you who what you haven't done or who you know what uh, you don't know. And you might sink into that inferiority complex. And there's no way to get out of it. Mm. Or you might feel jealousy in a relationship. You may feel this jealousy or an envy. And uh, it is so strong. There's Oh, it's so strong. You just can't do anything. Your whole life is twisted by it. So that person comes into therapy. And what you do with that therapy is take a long time. I think that takes a long time. With the one I kind of therapy I do, it takes a while. Mm -hmm. And uh, but we explore that, and we especially uh, explore the narratives, the many narratives that are at work in a person's life and personality, and eventually, uh, probably find a way to certainly to get through the jealousy and deal with that maybe recurring inferiority, that can be done in a therapeutic way. That's the beauty of psychotherapy, to be able to, to work with that. So it doesn't take anything away from the soul, it's just that there certainly is, uh, uh, there definitely is a relationship between soul and body. And Aristotle said, you know, that the soul is in every part of the body, and uh, there's a way in which uh, 
when the brain is affected, or maybe even another part of the body, the sexual body might be affected, or uh, muscle, or walking, you know, things like that. These are these have a tremendous impact on us. And I'm suggesting, as I said a while ago, that medicine might want to look for the soul in those problems and not just the physical solutions. I know we're getting a little bit close towards the end of the conversation. I want to thank you again for doing this and giving so much of your time to to have this conversation. Um, you know, I know you mentioned this earlier in the conversation that you have, I think you spent something like 40 years of your life being a therapist. And, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, I asked Jim Hollis the same question. Um, when people were coming to you during that time period, and showing up and telling you their you know most intimate details and and problems of their life what kind of themes and maybe this is related to the quote i read from your book care of the soul about how you know modern addictions and technology can really take away from a meaningful you know soulful life what kind of themes did you notice that were recurring, if any, that come to mind over the the time period when you were, you know, acting as a therapist? And I'm, I guess, this is a way for me, kind of in closing, to try to get any other, you know, feedback from you or advice that you might have for modern people who are seekers or who are suffering that you know would love to talk to you one-on-one, -on -one, but probably never will, and would love to get you know any wisdom or, or feedback that you might additionally want to share? Um, well, one thing is uh, we, when I say we, I mean people doing the kind of work that I do. Uh, we, we talk about uh, going with the symptom or going into the symptom. That's a kind of little, oh, what do you call it, little slogan that we keep in mind yeah. in our work. So that's that, I think, is a key thing. I, I think if more people understood that, we'd be better off. So that when you have a problem, let's say your, your difficulty is um, you are depressed. Let's say you're depressed. Um, that's, your, that's the thing that's bothering you. Uh, we would say that the thing to do is not to... Uh, fight it, but rather to uh, try to go with it in some way, get into, try to go, you know, hold that depression. Don't just try to get away from it. Try to try to be close enough to it to be able to get to know it a bit. And when you stop fighting it and are with it, it may be less controlling. And eventually you might be able to find a way to, first of all, to coexist with it, and ultimately, then to have that depression morph into some strength, mm. that uh, it can do that. It can morph into a strength. Same with jealousy. You can learn from jealousy how to be a much better friend and, and companion with someone if you can go with it, stay with it instead of say, "Oh, we got to get rid of this," and how can I get rid of it? That's something that has been really that I have seen in therapy over and over again. My clients know. I still do a little therapy. Uh, I do, you know, I have a half dozen people that I see. Um, and they know that uh, that I'm going to be, in every case, I'm going to be sympathetic with their, their problem, that I'm not going to try to get rid of it. That's not my way. 
and and I find that that is it's very much like the Tao Te Ching again. You mm. you, uh, you 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 don't force it. You don't force your way to try to rip something out because you don't like it. What you do, or you don't think it's healthy. And we have all these biases. If you could more uh, uh, stay with the symptoms as guidance guides as to where we need to go, uh, then I think it can be very useful and. Uh, that's one thing. That's one principle. It's not. It's not a particular issue that comes up, but that's a principle that I use all the time, and it really helps me. Yeah, Thomas, this this has been a uh, a real pleasure for me to do this. And maybe in closing, I'd love to know, and I'm sure the people listening to this would love to know what's next for you. What what is still you know interesting and exciting? Where do you think you're going to be, you know, allocating your your time and energies in the coming year? Um, well, I'm 82 now. Uh, I'm beginning to feel uh, a slight, I can't say slowing down. Actually, things are speeding up. But um, I do feel age as having an impact. Uh, on the other hand, in many most ways, it doesn't. So I am right now working on two books. I have one coming out in May. I continue to write. I've written too many books already, but I just can't stop. And I I just have so many things I want to put down, and I enjoy putting words together so much. Writing is, is a great treat for me. It's something that uh, people, I don't get much of a chance to talk about, but I love writing. And uh, I love the whole process of putting a book together. So I have a book on emptiness coming out in the spring. Stories of emptiness, traditional religious stories, made for the most part about emptiness, which means uh, it's it's called shunyata in in India. It means uh, a deep a deep sense of of uh, a uh, hollow in everything you do. That you uh, space for mystery and the mysticism and the things you can't talk about, the invisibles. Mm-hmm. Uh, Putting all that mystery and empty as emptiness into your life is it's very traditional, important teaching in the East, especially. And so I've I've put that book together, and I'm writing a new one. I'm starting now uh, on uh, Henry David Thoreau, pretty much not about him, but using it's called the Cure at Walden Pond, mm-hmm. and I I see that he made a retreat. You know, he made a retreat just two miles from town where he lived mm-hmm. to go into this little cabin on a pond with a lot of people around him. I mean, it wasn't, he didn't go off into the mountains, but he did go on retreat and he did it so that he says so he could live deliberately. I, I think that his, he was such an interesting man. I think that he has a lot to teach us about how to deal with these problems we have today. Fair enough. I've been there. It's a beautiful spot. Um, yeah, it is. Thank you again so much for doing this. I know you don't do a ton of these interviews, um, seemingly. So it's a, it's a real privilege again to be able to do this. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been my, my pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. 